be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. He is the author of a new book called The Hedge Fund Mirage, The Illusion of Big Money and Why It's Too Good to Be True. Uh, he is also the founder of SL Advisors. Welcome to the show, Simon. Thanks, Jordan. Good to be on the show. Let's just start with your background a little bit. Uh, you were at J.P. Morgan a long time. Tell us a bit about your background before you founded SL Advisors. Well, 23 years at J.P. Morgan. Um, I spent about uh, 16 years or so of that in trading, fixed income and foreign exchange trading. I went through a lot of mergers. I started with Manufacturers Hanover Trust a long time ago, and then that became Chemical and then Chase and J.P. Morgan. So I spent many years in trading, ran that trading business. And then I moved over to private equity and set up the hedge fund seeding business in 2001, um, and that's where we raised uh, private money to go and, and really be sort of a venture capital investor in hedge funds. And so I had 23 years altogether, and I left J.P. Morgan in 2009 and uh, set up the business I run now, which manages my own money and, and that of clients as well. So wh- why did you leave after such a long and successful career at Morgan? Um, you know, that's a great question. I, I, it's a great company. I had a good time there. Um, you know, the seeding hedge fund business had been good, but in 2008, uh, you really couldn't raise money to do anything new. Frankly, I had a lot of money invested in J.P. Morgan in deferred compensation, which I was interested in just being able to take out before tax rates went up. And I was ready to do my own thing. I'd worked for a big company for a long time, and uh, you know, I was just ready for the, the sort of the freedom to to really run my own business and do things the way I wanted to do. So it was it was a good opportunity. And to tell us a little bit about SL Advisors. Uh, what kind of clients uh, do you have, and what kind of things do you do with them today? Well. You know, SL Advisors started out as really my own family office, managing my money. And we spent a lot of time thinking about uh, income generation for clients because everybody's real problem today is how do you generate any income with interest rates as low as they are? So we have a number of strategies which are designed to do that. We have an MLP strategy, which is energy infrastructure, which is a very interesting area with 6% tax-deferred yields and, and income growth. We have another strategy where we invest in uh, dividend-yielding stocks, and then we hedge out the market risk to try and capture the dividend yields without being exposed to market moves. Um, we run a deep value equity strategy as well. Um, we, we really don't invest in debt. Everything we do really avoids uh, companies with a lot of debt. We don't borrow money. We don't use leverage. We don't invest in debt. I think debt is, is, what, got, uh, is what got us to a lot of the problems that we have today. And so uh, we use equities often a hedged format, to look to create sort of fixed income type returns. It's kind of the opposite. Now that you're not using debt, you no, know, spending time right. at banks and doing hedge funds, where debt was what it was all about. So well, you had we a, don't a run a hedge fund. You? you know, the, the author of the hedge fund, Mirage, should not run a hedge fund. Right? So 
Everything we do <laughs> is, is completely transparent. It's in separately managed accounts so clients can see where their money is. There's no leverage. We don't charge the 2% management fee and the 20% incentive fee that hedge funds charge. So we think that the way we manage money is how a lot of hedge fund managers uh, could if they, if they chose to, if investors pushed them to. And one of the things I hope with the book is that more hedge fund investors will start to question why hedge funds are structured the way they are with these illiquid limited partnership uh, structures and why more of them don't use separately managed accounts, which is, in fact, how uh, the traditional asset management industry already operates. So let's explain from the beginning. Uh, not, not everybody may be completely familiar with what a hedge fund is and, and why they started out uh, being you know, kind of a separate animal from managed accounts. Um, and give us a, a brief history to how they've grown uh, in influence and, and uh, how big they are today. Yeah, I mean, of course, hedge funds uh, started out as a great idea, and there are some very talented hedge fund managers. So a hedge fund is a private, it's really a private company or a private limited partnership. Um, because they're private, they're only available to qualified investors, which means people with a certain minimum net worth, uh, assets under management or, or minimum income. Um, and so that allows the manager of the hedge fund to engage in strategies that are more risky, have more leverage, using shorting, maybe can be more profitable strategies because they don't have to be registered with the SEC. The funds don't have to be registered, and neither does the hedge fund manager, although that may, it looks like that may change by the end of this year. So they started out as sort of a high net worth investment. And, and, and you know, back in the 90s, um, you know, it was often uh, a sort of a badge of honor or a great thing to say, well, you know, I'm invested in such and such big hedge fund. Clearly, I'm rich enough to be invested, and it's hard to get in. You have to know somebody or you have to, you know, have a personal connection. So it was a great idea that basically, uh, like a lot of things, uh, became too big. And so in the 90s, hedge funds really did deliver good returns. They did a good job. The clients did well. There just weren't that many of them. And in 2001, 2002, when the dot-com bubble was unraveling, hedge funds preserved capital. They did what they were supposed to do. They hedged. But as a result, you know, in investing, uh, success is uh, often the enemy in terms of size, and it attracted a tremendous amount of assets. A lot of institutions moved into hedge funds. And frankly, uh, you know, the situation you have today is that the industry is overcapitalized. I mean, I think that there's just too much money for the industry to be able to manage effectively and still generate the returns that people are looking for. How much money are in hedge funds today, and you know, where did that come from when it started? Well, it's about $2 trillion. Um, a lot of the money is in the U.S. It's increasingly institutional money. So whereas it started out as private bank money, high net worth investors around the world, increasingly U.S. institutions starting out with endowments and foundations. You know, famously, Yale was a very early investor in hedge funds. But now you're seeing public pension funds going into the hedge fund business. And, and this is why everybody should care, because, you know, we have a, a tremendous problem in the United States in terms of underfunded pensions. Um, many big U.S. corporations are underfunded. Certainly many public pension plans, many, many state funds are underfunded, and it's hard to know where they're going to make the money they need to to meet retiree obligations, you know, with bond yields around 2%. And so hedge funds with an historic return of 7 look very attractive on the surface, and so you have really tens of billions of dollars of pension money going into hedge funds, and yet the problem is that hedge funds are not returning 7%. They haven't been able to do that for a long time. And 
if the pension money that's going into hedge funds doesn't achieve its return target, ultimately it's going to be everybody's problem. Ultimately it's going to be a taxpayer issue. It'll be a public policy issue. It won't just be a problem for some private bank investors. In fact, a lot of the pension funds have actuarial assumptions, I think even higher than 7%, sometimes 8 and 9%, where they're assuming these long-term rates of return. Um, and they're, they're, you're saying that they're really hoping that the hedge funds are going to bail them out because they're never going to earn anything close to that if they keep it in bonds. Well, that's right. You see, the, the superficial appeal of hedge funds is that if you just look at the average annual returns, they have been about 7%. And in addition, those returns have not been that correlated, you know, going back 15 years with stocks or bonds. And so if you do any sort of uh, financial analysis, any sort of what's called mean variance optimization, basically if you put it into a model, and say, how much should I have in stocks and bonds and hedge funds? I'm a long-term investor. Hedge funds will get a big allocation because, because of those features, because of the return history and because of the low correlation. The problem is that the good returns were generated with a very small industry. And so if you look at the return on the average dollar, which is another way of saying what's the asset-weighted return or what has the average investor done, it's dramatically less than 7%. But investors haven't really made that adjustment because the hedge fund industry has grown at, you know, at a fairly substantial pace over, you know, just a, just a handful of years. And so that's the fundamental mistake that I think a lot of institutional clients are making today in allocating uh, to hedge funds. Uh, explain a little bit of the fee structure because it's kind of unusual for people, so-called two and 20. Explain how that would work and how that contrasts would say a mutual fund people might be familiar with or a separately managed account. Yeah, so well, hedge, the, the 2 and 20 refers to the, the 2. The 2 is the 2% management fee. So when you invest with a hedge fund, uh, they take 2% of your assets as a fee every year, regardless of how they do. And, you know, some funds charge 1.5%, some actually charge more than 2 There are some that charge 3 or 4% even, but let's say 2% is fairly common. And then the 20 means that they take 20% of the profits. So if you make 10%, in a year, or if they make you 10%, they'll keep two of the 10, but they've already charged you a 2% management fee, so they'll actually be keeping 4%. So you can pretty quickly get to a situation where a hedge fund is keeping, you know, a third of the, of the return, even in a reasonably good year. And in a bad year, they can be keeping, uh, well, potentially all of the return. So it's, uh, it's a very lucrative fee structure for the hedge fund manager. But what happens when there are losses? Uh, do they share in the losses? Well, they really don't. You know, they, if, if, if you lose money, they don't charge you the 20% incentive fee because there's no profit to charge you on. And, of course, they do have what's called a high watermark, so they're supposed to wait until you've made back the money that was lost until they start charging you again. But not every hedge fund will do that. So, so if a hedge fund has a big loss, they may just close down, and you, and you won't have a chance to recoup your loss because they'll decide they're going to go out of business. You know, private equity managers that I've talked to are jealous of hedge fund managers with, with their fee structure because even though private equity also charges pretty hefty fees, in private equity, they often have what's called a clawback, which is to say that if a private equity manager loses you money, you can actually take back something that you've paid them in the past, some of the, some previous year's incentive fee. Um, and also private equity managers will only earn an incentive fee on realized, in other words, when they sell something out of profit. Whereas a hedge fund manager will, will value the securities they've got, and even if they haven't sold any, you know, they can still charge that incentive fee. So private equity managers tend to be pretty jealous of the fee structure that hedge fund managers have. Has there been some pushback from institutional investors saying these fees are too high for the hedge funds? You know, only to a limited extent. I'm frankly surprised there hasn't been more. Um, 
Very little. I mean, if you look at average management fees, maybe they've come down by five basis points or something like that. I don't really think incentive fees have changed that much. Um, a lot of the evidence is anecdotal, and of course, big institutions may negotiate separate deals for a separately managed account, which does have a lower fee structure. But in general, I would say that fees haven't changed that much. And you know, one of the things that I really hope to get out of the book is to is to really provoke investors to go back and, and challenge some of these assumptions. Say, so, well, why do we pay? To, why do we pay you a 2% management fee when 10-year Treasury yields are only 2%? You know, why are we paying you 20% of the profits? Why not 10%? You know, I think if, the, if hedge fund fees were cut in half, the world would keep turning, nobody would go hungry, the investors would have a little bit fairer deal, and I can't really see what's wrong with that. What's needed is for investors to take, uh, you know, a much more assertive stance with respect to the industry, with respect to the consultants, quite frankly, that advise them and to go back and push for better terms. So what is the consultants that in many cases advise them to go into hedge funds? They don't do it directly. Well, I think that, you know, when I started writing the book, I, I thought, boy, these hedge fund managers have really ripped everybody off. But as I spent more time researching it, I realized that, you know, the investors are wealthy people and they're institutions. They're, they're you know, they're in a position to have their own advice and, and to get the consultants they need. And I think that the advisors to the investors have frankly really misled them. They, there really hasn't been enough critical analysis. If you're negative on hedge funds, it's hard to make a living out of that. Okay, I mean, you can write a book like I have, and you know, nobody gets rich writing the book unless it's a Harry Potter series. And I didn't write it for the money. I wrote it because I think there's a story to be told. But you know, everybody in the industry is there to raise money for hedge funds and to direct capital to hedge funds. And, and if you think that if you're skeptical of it, you go do something else. And so investors never hear the opposite side of the story. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Simon Lack. Uh, his new book is called The Hedge Fund Mirage, The Illusion of Big Money and Why It's Too Good to Be True. Uh, he is also founder of SL Advisors. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. If you lead a team of any kind, you need to listen to this show. Tune in to Leading with Emotional Intelligence, hosted by Esther Orioli. Esther provides you with the tools and techniques you need to harness the power of EQ to stop setting goals and start changing behaviors in your organization. Get the latest concepts in EQ from a top-of-the-house perspective and have your questions answered on air. Leading with Emotional Intelligence is broadcast live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Is your business or organization operating as efficiently as it should be? There are five basic dynamics present in every workplace that can effectively derail any organization. Be sure to listen for What's Leadership Got to Do With It? with Rick Tiemann. Rick and his guests will discuss how you can manage these five dynamics and improve your leadership skills. Leaders that want a successful business can't afford to miss this program. What's Leadership Got to Do With It? is broadcast live every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. 
Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Simon Lapp. Uh, He is the founder of SL Advisors and the author of a new book called The Hedge Fund Mirage, The Illusion of Big Money and Why It's Too Good to Be True. Welcome back to the show, Simon. Thank you, Jordan. At the beginning, you talk about the truth about hedge fund returns. So why don't you tell us what the image is, and then, without getting too technical, what the truth is about what kind of returns people are actually earning after fees with hedge funds. Well, yeah, of course, the image is, you know, you see all these hedge fund managers who are incredibly wealthy, and it's normal to assume that if somebody's made a lot of money in a client business, that the clients have made a lot of money as well. And yet the reality is that the investors would have been better off if all of the money would have been in treasury bills. And that was the staggering conclusion that I arrived at when I did the research. So it really is as simple as that. If all of the money ever invested in hedge funds had been left in treasury bills and in the equivalent of, of a bank savings account, in aggregate, the investors would have been better off. And it's really because the good returns were made when there were a small number of investors. And as the industry has grown, the returns have tended to come down. And so the industry grew so quickly that in 2008, when uh, you know when the market crashed and hedge funds had a, t- a disastrous year, down 23%, uh, and they're supposed to be hedging, but they obviously weren't, in 2008, the hedge fund industry lost all of the money it had made for clients in the last 10 years and probably all of the money it had ever made in history. In that one year, it wiped out all of the profits. In fact, if you just take a a sort of a simple uh, portfolio construction of 60% stocks, 40% bonds, that will have beaten hedge funds every year since 2002. And so it really just illustrates that, you know, the smart money was the early money, as is usually the case, and the big money has come in, you know, in the last five, six, seven years, and, you know, frankly, they've had, they've had very bad results. Now, you're saying that would still be true today? I mean, treasury bills are basically zero today. So you're saying that zero is going to be better than you're going to be earning going forward in hedge funds. Well, you know what? Last year, um, I did the research through 2010 because I finished a book in the summer. But last year, hedge funds were down around 4 to 5%. You know, stocks were flat. Uh, you know, corporate bonds did well. Treasury bills returned, as you say, pretty much zero. But, yeah, even in 2011, treasury bills outperformed hedge funds because hedge funds were negative. You know, going forward, um, I think that hedge, I wouldn't say hedge funds overall will lose money. In other words, do, you know, less than zero. They'll do substantially worse than the 7 to 8% that investors are expecting. I think that, you know, half of that is maybe what they'll do. I think they can probably do a 3 to 4% type return at these uh, sort of levels of interest rates and this size. 
And I think that's a pretty miserable uh, set of uh, returns. I mean, I wouldn't bother investing in something that's going to just do 3 or 4%. And that's why investors should be looking elsewhere, in my opinion. Now, you said kind of offhand that during 2008 they lost these huge amounts of money and so on because they weren't really hedging. Well, isn't that what they're supposed to be doing? I mean, something like 2008 should be fantastic for them if they're going short and buying puts and doing all kinds of exotic things to benefit from the market falling. Why were they not doing that? Well, you know, the thing is what hedge funds um, have always have done historically is they've hedged, but the purpose of their investing has been to exploit inefficiencies, to extract what's called alpha in the world of, you know, financial math. In other words, to pick up the inefficiencies, to take advantage of sort of discrepancies in market pricing. And when it was a $100 billion industry, about 5% of its current size back in the 90s, they could do that. And hedging was what was necessary to sort of extract out that inefficiency. As the industry's grown, they're just, you know, it's outgrown the existence or the availability of all of these inefficiencies. And so hedge funds wind up having more and more sort of market risk. They wind up being along the market in one form or another. There'll be short put options. They have strategies that will tend to do badly in a, in a really uh, big down market. You know, there's an interesting number that I came up with, which is that, you know, you, if you ask uh, any institutional client what they think they'll do on hedge funds, you know, they'll tell you 7%. That's 10, I, I was on a panel the other day that I was chairing at a conference, and 7% return objective is about where the market is. So there's $2 trillion in the hedge fund industry. 7% return on $2 trillion is $140 billion a year in profit. Now, the problem with that is that the hedge fund industry has never made $140 billion, ever, except in 2009 when it bounced back from losing 450 in 2008. So you can sort of cancel out 08 and 09 because between the two years they still lost a lot of money. So today's hedge fund investors are essentially assuming the hedge fund industry will have a record year every year just to hit that 7% return objective. And what it really shows you is that there's too much capital in the hedge fund industry relative to the available opportunity set. And that's what investors are finding out, unfortunately, through years like last year when they were down 5%. And I think we'll continue to find out as long as there's this much capital in, in the hedge fund business. Now, you say that the business is overcapitalized. What do you think is correctly capitalized? How much money could they handle and create some real value for people? I mean, probably half if, it, if there was a trillion dollars. You know, the assets under management really took off after 2002. And so, you know, between 500 billion and a trillion dollars, I would imagine is plausibly manageable for the hedge fund industry. But I think they've shown pretty clearly that two trillion is too much, you know, by some margin. So I would say as a, as a sort of working assumption, cut it in half. And I think that uh, maybe, you know, you might see some returns a little bit more attractive. So, in fact, have some hedge funds recently gone out of business and returned the resistant remaining money to investors? You know, um, it's a big world. There's, there's thousands of hedge fund managers, and there are some really good hedge funds. And, you know, one of the things I always want to make sure is people don't take away from my book is that the whole industry is bad. There are some very, very talented hedge fund managers. There are some very happy clients. You know, my point is just simply that in aggregate, it hasn't been a great experience. And some of the best hedge fund managers will close to new money, and they'll say, look, we, we don't think we can manage any, any more assets without you know, hurting everybody's return, so we're not going to take any additional capital. 
and so and they'll do that and i think that's to be applauded and and and, and that's a good thing of course the industry as a whole hasn't done that and you know you, you can't expect every hedge fund manager to do that because you know in, in the nature of the business is to be optimistic on outcomes it's really up to investors to look not just at the returns, but at the growth in the industry and to incorporate the growth of the industry into their own return forecast when they decide where to allocate. In looking at hedge funds, there are various indices and companies that track hedge funds. Uh, what is the best way to pick one that you think might do better than the average and does have a good track record? What, what can you trust from the past and allow you to project to the future? Well, here's an interesting thing, and, I, and as I've done more research since the book, uh, this became clear to me. But one of the things is, is to not have a diversified portfolio of hedge funds. And that sounds a little counterintuitive because normally in finance, you, you know, diversification is the only free lunch, right? You're supposed to have a diverse portfolio of stocks, 20, 30, 40, 50 stocks, because you don't want exposure to any one specific company. And the reason that that makes sense with stocks is because stocks go up over the long run. I know the last 10 years has, has not really helped that case, but, you know, there's many, many decades of history to show they do. So you want to capture the overall increase in equities without being exposed to any sort of one company's risk. Now, with hedge funds, it's very different. With hedge funds, the average return is less than treasury bills. So, in fact, with hedge funds, you don't want the average return. And so, therefore, you don't want diversification. So the right way to invest in hedge funds, in my opinion is to have a small number of hedge funds. You actually want to embrace what's called idiosyncratic risk. You want the small number of hedge funds about whom you have a very high opinion, the high conviction investments, and, and the ones where you really feel you have an edge. And maybe just have three or four of those. So you have smaller total money invested in hedge funds. You have a smaller number of hedge funds. I think that you have to go off the beaten track. You know, when, when I started investing in hedge funds in the early 90s, you know, there wasn't a database that you could go to and say, oh, I'd like to look for a long-short equity manager that focuses on, you know, healthcare. Um, you found managers through uh, personal network, through referrals, through word of mouth. You know, you looked at strategies that were obscure and, and not that well followed. And I think that successful investors are going to find they have to sort of go back to that. They have to go back to the way hedge fund investors used to approach the market and look for things that are... Um, you know, obscure and, uh, and and not heavily trafficked because that's where there'll be more inefficiencies and things that they're better able to exploit. It is past performance. I know it's not a guarantee of future results, but it is uh, helpful in figuring out what's going to happen in the future. Is a good track record tends to continue or not? You know, um, there's a couple things about that. Unfortunately, not. Um, so I, 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 I did some work on, I, I bought a database of hedge fund managers, probably 40% of the industry, and I said, okay, let's just say you're going to be a hedge fund investor and, and your goal is to pick hedge funds in the top 40% of performance, which doesn't sound like a particularly ambitious goal. <clears throat> it's not as if you're trying to pick the top 10%. You say, I'm just going to pick the top 40%. So I said, okay, how likely is it a hedge fund manager is going to stay in that top 40%? So it turns out that if you look at all the managers that are ever in the top 40% of performance in any one year, 93% of them will spend at least one year not in that top 40%. Only 7% of hedge funds that are in the top 40% are always there for every year of their existence. So there's what's called a very, very high uh, mean reversion or a complete absence of return persistence, which is the same thing. Hedge funds go up and down. They oscillate back and forth. 
And so that makes it extraordinarily challenging for somebody who's picking hedge funds because it means, frankly, that you should be selling your hedge fund when they've had a good year and buying hedge funds when they've had a bad year. Now, hedge fund investors don't do that. Hedge fund investors, as a group, are the quintessential momentum investors. If you show an investor a good return, they'll want to invest in it. If you show them a bad return, they'll want to take their money out. And that's because that's about the only quantitative data that hedge fund investors ever see is the track record. So you're supposed to do the complete counterintuitive thing with performance. If you see good performance, it probably won't be repeated. And yet nobody goes around saying that they buy out-of-favor hedge funds. Uh, So is is the idea to uh, buy the 7% that are consistently in the top uh, 40%? Well, it's a challenge. I mean, I wouldn't suggest going and investing in hedge funds that just had a bad year because that could continue. I think it just shows that it's very hard to pick hedge funds. And so don't pick that many. Just pick a handful where you really have a very strong opinion and where you can spend as much time as it takes to understand the strategy in a a lot of detail. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Simon Lack. Uh, He is the founder of SL Advisors. And his new book is called The Hedge Fund Mirage, The Illusion of Big Money and Why It's Too Good to Be True. We'll be back after this. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Simon Lack, the author of a new book called The Hedge Fund Mirage, The Illusion of Big Money and Why It's Too Good to Be True. Welcome back to the show, Simon. Thanks, Jordan. And again, tell them your website and how to find out more about you and the book. Yes, so uh, the website is sl-advisors.com, or you could just Google me, Simon Lack, and uh, 
We run separately managed accounts and strategies that look to generate income for clients uh, using uh, equities with a hedge overlay. We use master limited partnerships. Uh, we run an equity strategy. Everything's completely transparent. We don't run a hedge fund. We don't invest in hedge funds. You know, we don't use leverage. So it's uh, it's all a very sort of straightforward process. And my money's invested in all of the strategies alongside of our clients. Now, part of the, uh, not only have people not been getting the returns they expected from hedge funds, as we've talked about, but there's been outright fraud as well. Uh, before we get to Bernard Madoff, whom people may be familiar with, there was a company called Long-Term Capital Management. Why don't you tell us briefly the story of what happened at Long-Term Capital Management and what, how that transformed the hedge fund business. Yeah, Long-Term Capital was back in the 90s. And, uh, you know, when I was at Jake Morgan, in fact, it was Chase Manhattan then, we had, in, we had money invested with long-term capital, and they were also a counterparty of ours in derivatives. We did a lot of trading with them. They were enormous. They were probably every bank's biggest class. We made a lot of money trading with them. And what long-term capital was doing was, was what's uh, sort of called colloquially as picking up pennies in front of the steamroller. They, they were looking to identify very, very subtle differences in security prices and then put on a long for the cheap one and a short for the expensive one and used lots and lots of leverage. In fact, when they failed, they had as much as 100 to 1 leverage, so $100 of investments for every $1 of equity. And they had some very, very smart people. They had, of course, uh, Nobel laureates there. They had uh, John Murrayweather, who was uh, from Solomon Brothers previously. And they really believed that, you know, they were the smartest guys in the room. And they had these sort of wonderful risk models that showed how it was, you know, statistically almost impossible for them to lose money on all of the bets that they had going on at the same time. And as we now know, you know, things surprise you. And we get a thousand-year flood, you know, every 10 years or whatever. And all of the bets they had all went offside at the same time, in part because other people in the market had some of those very same bets. In fact, ironically, when Citigroup um, got out of their fixed income arbitrage business in the in early 1998 because Citigroup owned Solomon Brothers, which is where John Merriweather and some of his colleagues used to work. Citigroup's exiting of positions that were similar to the ones long-term capital had caused those positions to move against long-term capital in some ways sort of led to uh, you know, the disaster. So long-term capital wasn't fraudulent. They were guilty of uh, you know, enormous overconfidence. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they got the right outcome, which is that, the, you know, the equity investors were basically wiped out in that. Now, you said you were actually involved in it at the time. What was your involvement? And what did you, how did they get saved from bringing down the entire system, which was possible at the time? Yeah, well, I was involved because uh, I ran fixed income trading, and, and they were a huge counterparty, so we were doing trades with them. And I also sat on the investment committee that allocated capital to them. Now, we we made money trading with them. Every month we probably made we probably made in one month as much money as we lost investing with them through the whole period of time, and, and, and they kept giving money back as well. So we had money invested. They generate good returns. They force you to take back those returns because they didn't want the investors' capital to dilute the returns on their own money because they were making so much out of fees themselves that they were becoming a bigger bigger part of the fund. And then they also asked us to price an option. Um, and I won't go into It's sort of a complicated story. It's in the book, but basically... The, the, the punchline is Myron Scholes um, was one of the partners of long-term capital. And in the world of options trading, there's a mathematical formula called the Black-Scholes formula, which is, is used in option pricing to figure out the value of an option. And so Myron Scholes 
who's one of the two authors of the Black-Scholes formula, was a partner at Long-Term Capital. They wanted us to do an option trade with them, a complicated option, and we weren't sure we could price it. And so they came back and said, no, Myron Scholes would be happy to come over to the office and explain to us how to price it. And so I sort of thought, <laughs> that if I'm going to do an options trade with Myron Scholes on the other side, there might not be a trade I want to do, and, and best to let somebody else do it. And in fact, UBS, a big Swiss bank, did do the trade, and of course it blew up on them and they lost a lot of money. I see. So what, after the long-term capital blew up and almost brought down the whole system, what was the impact on the hedge fund business at that point? You know, um, it was an enormous issue at the time, but looking back, it was really, it was rarely a blip. I mean, when it happened, it really did seem like a, it, it was the biggest crisis up until 2008. Um, so, you know, you were worried about the sort of solvency of all kinds of other firms, but, you know, the Fed did the right thing and they got, the, you know, the Wall Street banks to get together and basically take over the positions, wipe out the equity investors, including the partners, some of whom had borrowed money to invest in their own fund, and to hold the positions and to get out of them over time. And, and so the banks did that. And so although it was for a couple months there, the markets were extremely volatile and very weak, um, you know, they bounced back. And in 1999, hedge funds had a pretty decent year. I think equities had a, had a very good year. And, and uh, we all sort of moved on. So we had, you know, the... A crisis there in the summer of 98, you know, starting with the Russian default uh, in the summer and long-term capital in October of 98. And six months later, it was all just a distant dream and, and we'd all moved on. It's pretty amazing, actually. It was now, the amazing, one that, yeah, looking back, because I wouldn't have thought it at the time. But, yeah, it was amazing looking back. Now, the other uh, hedge fund fraud that people are probably more familiar with is, is Bernard Madoff, uh, which kind of blew up at the end of 2008. Um, so how did you touch that? And, and I, I mean, the question people still ask is how could he get away with this for so long with all these sophisticated people and accountants and feeders and all these sophisticated uh, people? Yeah. How did he get away with it? That's a great question. I mean, well, Fairfield Greenwich was a firm that was a, was a feeder fund. So basically Fairfield Greenwich would get money from investors and they would then invest it in, in Madoff. And Fairfield Greenwich was supposedly doing the research and the due diligence. And so they came to talk to us about becoming clients of Fairfield Greenwich. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we sat down and talked with them about the strategy and, and what was going on. And what they described to us sounded like this. It sounded like there were two businesses that made off. There was an asset manager that was running a hedge fund, and there was a brokerage firm that was trading with clients. And what they led us, what they made it sound like was that the asset manager was watching what the brokerage clients were doing and was able to, in quotes, anticipate or, in fact, front-run the clients. And so they painted a picture. They didn't say we're front-running the clients because that would be stupid and illegal. But if you paid attention, it sounded as if that was what was going on. So we listened to this. We didn't know if we understood it correctly or not. We knew we wouldn't be able to negotiate appropriate terms. Um, it was just not the kind of thing. You know, J.P. Morgan... Is a squeaky clean place, and in my experience, you know, if it's not going to be 100% ethical, the company's not going to do it. And so we never had another meeting. There was nothing to pursue. I, I thought subsequently, when it did all blow up, I thought to myself that probably that's what Fairfield Greenwich really believed was going on. And even though front running's illegal, I think Fairfield Greenwich no doubt felt that because they themselves weren't doing the front running they weren't breaking the law themselves they were sort of the passive beneficiaries but that was okay and that's the sort of irony 
is that, uh, you know, they thought they were exploiting other people, whereas, in fact, they were being exploited themselves. But, you know, Bernie, and I never met Bernie Madoff, but obviously incredibly clever at creating this perception of scarcity, you know, not letting some people invest, you know, making it so that you had to go through a trusted friend or, or acquaintance to actually get access to him. But they wouldn't disclose what they were doing. And, and that's why I think you didn't see a J.P. Morgan invested in Madoff or a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley. Um, you didn't see any of these, uh, you know, big firms because he, he would never make it through the due diligence process. You know, that we would never have got enough information if we'd asked. We'd never have got the information that we would have need to make an investment. So you were not surprised when it blew up then? No, I can't say that. I never spent enough time on Madoff to have an opinion. Mm -hmm. A lot of times in investing, you look at something and you say, okay, you spend an hour on it. You say, oh, it just doesn't look like it's interesting. I don't really understand how they make money. I don't think I have a competitive edge on that. So you decide not to pursue it. It doesn't mean that you think they're crooked. It just means that you go decide to look elsewhere. So, no, I was totally shocked when it turned out to be the fraud that it was. But I think that um, other firms and maybe other parts of J.P. Morgan, J.P. Morgan's a big company, but other other firms that maybe looked more closely, couldn't get answers to reasonable questions and therefore decided to go away. And I think the, the institutions that invested deserve no sympathy because they should have done the due diligence to find out what was going on. The individuals who trusted Bernie, maybe were friends with Bernie, I think uh, were very, very unlucky. And, uh, and there's no doubt many, many human tragedies. Um, and they didn't deserve that, I'm sure. The institutional investors, yeah, you know, they obviously didn't do their work. They, 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 they didn't ask nearly enough questions to understand exactly how the money was getting made. And so what was the impact on the hedge fund industry when this all blew up in 2008? Well, it has had an impact, most definitely, in terms of the type of due diligence people do. I mean, you know, Madoff had, <coughs> excuse me, Madoff had a, um, an accounting firm that nobody had heard of. He had custody of the assets. So there's a lot more attention now focused on the due diligence process on really making sure that valuation is independent, that assets really are where they are, um, that the accounting and the audit firm really exist and really have audited the books and, you know, just making sure that all of the things that you think are there really are there and just not taking things on trust. And so it's a terribly, terribly expensive lesson for many people to learn. But I've no doubt that, you know, the due diligence processes that we have as a result are more robust. So do you think there are not any more frauds out there to be uncovered in the hedge fund world? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. There's a book called The Hedge Fund Fraud Casebook. And I thought this was amazing when I found this. So there's enough frauds, there's enough material to fill a book just for the hedge fund industry. Now, there's no book on sort of private equity crooks mutual fund crooks. I mean, obviously, there's been crooks running public companies like Enron and so on and so forth and WorldCom. But the hedge fund fraud casebook has 100 frauds in it, and it's not even a complete list. It doesn't include Bernie Madoff. There's a lot of other frauds that are not in there. Now, the hedge fund industry is fundamentally honest, okay? It's not full of crooks. It's run by people that are making, you know, they're making a living. They're charging egregious fees, but they're not dishonest people. They're just selling their services at the market clearing price, which happens to be a ridiculously high price. But that doesn't make them dishonest. That just means they're, you know, they're, 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 they're selling their services at a high price. However, if you want to be a crook, if you want to defraud investors, a hedge fund is the way to do it. 
because <laughs> it's a limited partnership structure with an opaque investment strategy, only available to qualified investors. You know, you're not going to defraud people by setting up a mutual fund because that's SEC registered. You're yeah. not going to do it by setting up a real estate fund because people want to go and see the building that they've invested in. You know, you're not going to do it with a private equity fund. So, unfortunately, the hedge fund industry draws a disproportionate number of, of villains, of crooks, to it, which doesn't mean that it's dishonest. It just means that it gets more of the crooks than it should do. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. Uh, my guest this hour is Simon Lapp. His book is called The Hedge Fund Mirage, The Illusion of Big Money and Why It's Too Good to Be True. We'll be back after this. markets up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you're looking for creative ways to improve your bottom line, Tune in to Make Your Move with Alan and Brian Bolio. Their proven track record of helping businesses enhance their profitability will provide the basis for a forum about actionable items based on a business person's perspective. The program will be business talk, but with an economic context, so you'll know how to stay ahead of the game. Make Your Move is broadcast live every Monday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. It's all Arizona, all over the world. If you're a local Arizona high school sports fan or if you're a transplanted fan somewhere else in the world, have we got a show for you. The first Internet sports radio talk show focusing solely on high school sports is The Coach's Corner with Scott Lovely. Tune in to talk about your favorite teams, players, or coaches. It's 100% Arizona high school sports coverage and a little bit more. Tune in Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Simon Lapp. Uh, he is an expert on the hedge fund business. His new book is called The Hedge Fund Mirage, The Illusion of Big Money and Why It's Too Good to Be True. Welcome back to the show, Simon. Thank you, John. In addition to your expertise on hedge funds, you have a lot of views on where the place, right places are to invest. And I just want to get your views first on, on Europe and what your view is on uh, the, the Greek uh, debt crisis and 
what's going on with Portugal? Is this going to drag the world into a black hole, or is this a solution? What, what is your expectation of what's going to happen there? You know, I think that um, clearly what's happening in Europe is one of the dominant factors, although I think Greece has started to take a little bit of a back seat now because we've sort of gotten used to what's going on. But fundamentally, I think that uh, we're in for an extended period of slow growth within the, within the Eurozone because of the austerity that's being imposed. And, you know, you can read lots about the sort of inherent imbalances in having a common currency union without fiscal transfers from essentially the productive north to the unproductive south. The solution, which is to just cut spending, cut government spending, and to raise taxes, you know, may be intended to reduce deficits that they run, but it's also going to be negative for growth. And so I think that the tail risk, you know, the risk of a real disaster has been largely eliminated because of the, the, the long-term repo operation that the ECB carried out about a month ago, where they extended about literally uh, almost half a trillion dollars in euros in three-year credit to banks, who could then turn right around and buy government assets, government bonds with that. And they'll do another one of those uh, later this month, which could be as much as a trillion euros. I think that that kind of uh, enormous liquidity injection means that Europe is probably not going to just implode. I think that, you know, a period of very slow growth is in, is in store. And in fact, you know, you, you have probably a 3% difference in GDP growth this year between the EU and between the United States, which is an enormous difference. And so I think they're going to need a weaker currency and a period of slow growth and uh, probably debt forgiveness. Certainly for the Greeks, you know, at least a 75% write down. Portugal, quite possibly, uh, because, you know, they borrowed too much money. And that's the cause of a lot of problems, uh, both in the U.S. and in Europe, has been borrowing too much money. But, you know, in Europe, they don't tend to confront the issues quite as aggressively as in the U.S. They tend to sort of go slowly and incrementally and hope that things will sort of work out, whereas the U.S. tends to take a, a bazooka and say, okay, we're going to solve this problem and move on. And I think that's why you're going to see the U.S., you know, coming out of the recession in much better shape than, the, than Europe. So is the basic trend in Europe particularly deflationary or inflation? The deflationary would be you have an economic slowdown, there's going to be less demand. But all this money that's being printed to bail everybody out, you'd think potentially would be inflationary. So which way will it go? I, you know, I think that in the near term, deflation is the bigger risk uh, with those enormous amounts of money creation going on. But money velocity is very, very low, which is why it's not turning into inflation right now. And I you know, as I'm saying that, you know, the market goes in the direction of causing the most pain. And I think that, you know, there's a real slowdown. There's, a, in, in fact, a reduction in bank credit. Uh, in, in Europe and in certain, part, in certain emerging markets as a result, funnily enough. Um, so I think that's going to be deflationary over the next year or two. Over the long run, I think that inflation is actually the solution for more people's problems than not. Most people are borrowers in the United States and in Europe, and inflation solves the problem for more people than it hurts. If you're a borrower, inflation reduces the sort of the real value of what you owe, and it's the sort of populist solution. And it's not that we'll vote for high inflation, but I think that when it becomes time to raise rates to head off inflation, I think that's going to be a real challenge. But I think in the near term, uh, there doesn't appear to be any great inflation risk on the horizon, meaning over the next year or two, over five to ten years, I think every investor needs to keep that in mind as a potentially uh, significant risk. So what would be the investment implications of that view uh, on short-term deflation, long-term inflation? 
Well, the way we look at it is the following. Bonds are a really bad investment. You know, fixed income markets generally are hugely distorted by central bank activity. And in the U.S., you know, the Federal Reserve through Operation Twist and QE1 and 2 before that is basically forcing bond yields down to levels that they would not otherwise be at. The government is, is, is basically making bonds really expensive and really unattractive. And so the answer is, if the government wants to own bonds that badly, let them buy bonds. Don't get in the way. Don't compete with the government. So the first thing is, you should have really no interest rate risk. Investors in their fixed income portfolios should have very, very short maturity uh, portfolios because you don't get paid enough for taking the risk of moving out on the yield curve. You know, 10-year treasuries yield less than 2%. If you buy 10-year treasuries and then you hold them till maturity, you're virtually guaranteed to lose purchasing power. So there's no point to do that. If the that's exactly is, the opposite of what people are doing. They're pouring money into the long end and mutual funds and so on to get 2% instead of zero. And it's a, and it's a bad deal. It's a bad deal. And so the, the counterintuitive answer is you have to go into risky assets, but I understand because obviously the world's a risky place, that that's not for everybody to do. So you do some combination of risky assets and, and cash, treasury bills. So I'll give you an interesting piece of math here. You could put $100 in 10-year treasuries, or you could say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put $20 in stocks, yielding 2.1%. That's the dividend yield on the S&P. And I'm going to leave $80 in cash. And in 10 years' time, as long as the dividends grow at 4%, which is less than their stock average, we've got 50 years of a 5% dividend growth rate, 4% growth in dividends with today's 2.1% dividend yield, the $20 in stocks will give you the same return that the $100 gave you in 10-year treasuries. And you've only used $20 to get that. You've got $80 left over. One day, you can invest it at a higher rate in, in fixed income, or you may find something else that you think is an attractive investment when the world's a safer place. So that's how expensive bonds are. That's how bad a deal the bond market is. Only $20 in stocks can give you the return on $100 in 10-year treasuries. And so the answer to me is investors should have the, the minimum interest rate maturity risk. They should have their minimum fixed income allocation. And they should have a strategy that has some money in risky assets, some in treasury bills, and then some in other income-seeking strategies. Master Limited Partnerships, I think, are a great asset class. Energy infrastructure investments here in the United States, 6% tax-deferred distributions with distribution growth. You get a K-1. It's not for everybody. It's for high-net-worth investors who don't mind getting a K-1, but I think it's a, it's a very under-owned asset class. I think hedged dividend-yielding stocks are attractive. You know, we have a strategy where we invest in, in dividend-yielding stocks, you know, J&J and P&G and Kraft and, and very, very boring names that have low volatility, you know, that are stable companies that are going to be around tomorrow. You're not going to wake up and say, oh, my goodness, what's happened to these guys? And then we hedge out the market risk so that the day-to-day swings of the market don't impact the portfolio. But over time, those dividends are going to grow and you're going to get a return that we think looks like what bonds have been over the last several years, but what bonds can't possibly be going forward. So, you know... Get out of fixed income, own risky assets and cash, and have some income-generating uh, strategies that are not in high-grade bonds. That's what we think investors should do, and that's what, that's what our clients are doing. Very good. Okay, well, my guest uh, this hour in the Money Answer Show has been Simon Lack. Uh, he is the uh, founder of SL Investors and um, SL Advisors. His book is called The Hedge Fund Mirage. 
the illusion of big money and why it's too good to be true. Thanks so much for being a guest on the Money Answer Show. Thank you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you, and we'll be back with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next.